Hello, and welcome back to PH Pod for the sixth episode of season three. I'm Bethany Hollenborg. And I'm Connor McCombs. Thank you so much for joining us for part two of this special dive into the American Public Health Association's annual conference. This season, we're focused on public health at work, and we had the chance to interview public health professionals and students on site in the hustle and bustle of the exhibit floor. This is a special two-parter episode, so be sure to go back to our previous episode and listen in on conversations around public health and education settings. This episode, we're discussing the future of public health at the intersection of law and community. We interviewed Michael Curry, Nicole Huberfeld, and team Christina Dantum and Rhea Monoka to get their opinion on current public health work and what the future looks like. Let's get into the interviews. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for us? So my name is Michael Curry. I'm president and CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. Uh, which represents over 52 community health centers across the state uh, out of over 300 practice sites serving over a million patients. So could you tell us a bit about what you're working on right now? Yeah, so working on a lot of different things. So we know uh, COVID is, is, is still here, it's still impacting communities, it's still impacting communities in a disparate way uh, so that we're still in the throes of that work as community health centers. Our patients, almost 70% people of color, a high percentage immigrant, are mostly poor, are living closer to the pain as we call it, right? Socially vulnerable. And then the other piece that I'm excited about is we've pulled together almost 60 black and Latinx leaders who run health systems in Massachusetts. Uh, We call it the Health Equity Compact. And they're at the table right now to figure out how can we move a health equity agenda in Massachusetts? How do we make sure there's diversity in governance? So when people are trying to figure out who to give a ventilator to, or who gets testing or where the testing sites are. There's diverse representation at the table. So we make the right decisions about uh, providing access and care. COVID-19 has revealed all of this. Yeah, and of course, more recently, we've seen this with monkeypox. We're not just seeing community disparity with COVID. There are more men who have sex with men being affected by monkeypox, and that's caused some disparity in treatment. But even among them, men who have sex with men of color are the least likely to be vaccinated and the most likely to be sick. You know, one of the things I think is just so important, and you made, you made that point well around COVID is just one of many examples, monkeypox being another, uh, HIV AIDS, right? We went through that crisis, that epidemic of dealing with HIV AIDS. And we, you know, my, my big frustration is to quote Shakespeare in his play Tempest, the past is prologue, right? How can we learn from the fact that we've been here before? And one of the reasons I think that is we don't know the past, right? We, we sort of survived the crisis, and then we just don't want to talk about it anymore, except for folks in the public health space and in the healthcare space. But we need the broader community to understand, as I'll mention on the panel today, that the pushback to wearing masks was not 2020. Um, it was 1918. <laughs> it was the Spanish flu in San Francisco and LA, where people were protesting and defiantly taking off their masks because they felt like there was no pandemic. You know, one of the things I think is so frustrating about, you know, public health in this country is, as I say, we defunded our public health infrastructure. And then we were shocked when it couldn't respond. So you want to talk about activism, or as we talk about defund the police. So if we want to talk about defunding and weaponize it in this one sense around the criminal justice system, let's have a conversation around the defunding when we knew there was a pandemic coming. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. You make a really good point about the past and how we need to let it influence what we do both today but also tomorrow. And building off of that, how are we bringing people to the table? 
we, I use a phrase that a political friend of mine said. He said, if you're not at the table, you're on the table or you're on the menu, right? So That, that is an interesting <laughs> phrase to use. I've never heard and that. It's, it's so powerful in so many contexts, right? Racial justice, think of any marginalized community, and you think if you're not at the table, chances are you're going to be at the table or on the menu. And then, you know, the, the other issue about how do you, you know, get people to the table, it's, it's, and you know, that whole saying is simple, stupid, right? Invite them, uh, talk to them, go to them. And I think, you know, one of the things I said at our most recent forum in the Bedford, I said, we want you to be health equity voters. People are like, oh, I'm an economic voter. I'm a, I'm a, um, a women's rights voter, right? So I'm asking them to add health equity. So when they meet an elected official, say, well, you know I'm voting on health equity. What are you doing around eliminating disparities in our communities? And when looking at the future of public health and this focus on diversity and equity and inclusion, what are steps we could be taking right now? Things we could be doing today and tomorrow and in the next couple of months? I tell people all the time that there's a little black girl right now as we sit here at the convention center in Roxbury that's meant to find a cure for cancer but we'll never know her. We've relegated that talent to a small population of people. And how do we now open that up so that little black girl can save our lives? I, I, I look at it as we now need to have an imperative, an urgency, a sense of urgency around this issue of inclusion and diversity. And the next time one of us is diagnosed with a, with a disease or a family member, a loved one is diagnosed with a disease, I really tell people, think about who could have solved for that if they were in medical school if they had practices in a position, we're doing research, and, and I think that's my message that I try to share. I think you make a really great point on specifically the idea that we treat diversity, equity, and inclusion as an obligation instead of what is just understanding that everybody has talent and thus we should have diversity, equity, and inclusion by default. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about some first steps to that? It feels like a really big problem that we've been trying to address. I don't think there's anything new under the sun, right? We know how to solve for this. Uh, we know how to address it. And the reality is um, it's systemic racism, right? If, if you really want to change something, I always jokingly say, you want to solve maternal health challenges in this country, put women in charge because the urgency will be there, because people are vested and have lived experiences to bring to the policy. Most times, a woman will decide that's not good for women. A person of color will decide that's not good for the communities where I grew up, and they'll make the right decision. But we're, we're not in the room, so we often end up on the table, at the table, and there's too many examples during COVID where that played out as well. That's amazing. Um, just being mindful of the time, we don't want to keep you too much longer. We really appreciate you meeting with us here today. At PH Pod, we do this thing where we ask for a short sentence. We try and say as much as we can with as few words as we can so that it's simple and it's usually more memorable. Thinking about what we're talking about here with equity, activism, uh, trying to bring people together on these issues and make sure every voice is heard, what is your short sentence? Can it be a proverb? Sure. My short sentence would be an African proverb uh, which says rivers are filled one drop at a time. 
so will you go ahead and introduce yourself for us? I'm Nicole Huberfeld, the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health and a Professor of Law at the School of Law. I'm also affiliate faculty with the Center for Anti-Racism Research and an affiliate with the Medicaid Policy Lab. Oh my goodness, that is one heck of a resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. So our first question for you is what are you working on right now? I am currently editing two books. One of them is The Law of American Healthcare. We're going to put out the third edition next year. I'm also working on editing David Jones's book on health in the Mississippi Delta. I'm writing an article that has been something that grew out of the problems that federalism created during the pandemic, making it hard for the federal government, states, and localities to coordinate their work during the course of the pandemic, and the weaknesses that it's revealed about how much we rely on federalism and what happens if states won't play ball because then in many instances, there actually will be no federal money or policy in the states that refuse to play. I'm also working quite a lot in the reproductive rights space. I'm doing a lot of teach-ins for doctors so they can understand what's happening in the wake of Roe v. Wade. Organizing a conference with my colleagues, Linda McLean and Aziza Ahmed for January 26, 2023. It was supposed to be the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, but instead we're having an after Roe conference. It will be at the law school, open to everybody. Please everybody come. I don't know how you find time for all of that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Juggling the expert in Medicaid and Medicare, federalism, and reproductive rights right now. Yeah. I, those are so many pressing issues as it is. Our next question is, what in public health is concerning you right now? But it sounds like it's everything. Kind of everything. <laughs> My biggest concern, if I had to say it in one sentence, is that the Supreme Court is using health as a vehicle for constitutional change. And the Supreme Court is not especially good at health or health care. Infamously, during oral arguments years ago, one of the justices actually said, oh, Medicare, Medicaid, I never remember which is which. And so when health care is a vehicle for change in the law, it's always an uncomfortable fit because you're never quite sure that the facts on the ground are going to be right. And so we had, of course, the Dobbs decision at the end of last term. Tomorrow we have oral arguments in the Talevsky case, which is a Medicaid case, super important for how the court interprets social programs going forward. We also have the Holland case on Wednesday, which is about whether or not Indian children must be adopted by Indian families, which has major equal protection implications and federalism implications. We also have the affirmative action case that was heard last week, which is also important for anti-discrimination and anti-subordination principles. I mean, the Supreme Court is doing a lot right now, and it has this huge trickle-down effect on our work in public health. And so I think it's really important for people to be paying attention, not to mention this little thing called an election tomorrow. That too, yeah. yeah. Midterms are tomorrow. a lot of milestone cases in one week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you Copying up. <laughs> Gotta be caffeinated to handle all of this. Tomorrow, actually, our, my students in 719 and Health Systems Law and Policy, we're going to listen to the Talevsky oral arguments together. It's our Medicaid day. Oh my so, God, that's so fun. Yeah, hopefully it'll be a good learning experience for them. You mentioned how the Supreme Court doesn't have really an expertise in health and health care. So when thinking about our Supreme Court and health and health care cases, how do we change to better allow for expertise in those spaces? I'm not sure that we can change the pipeline of cases heading to the Supreme Court. I think the bigger cultural change that needs to occur is that we not rely solely on the Supreme Court to defend our rights. When we're thinking about how civil rights are protected, it's not just a constitutional matter, it's also a matter of enacting laws that protect our rights. And I think for a long time, 
really since the civil rights era of the 1960s. We have relied on the Supreme Court to always provide that protection, but we're living now with a Supreme Court that is very much interested in rolling back protection of rights, rolling back federal power to enact laws, or at least ensuring that Congress is super specific when it does enact laws, which is not very realistic. And so I think we need a lot more engagement in terms of thinking about what good evidence-based policymaking is and what it takes to help state lawmakers and federal lawmakers enact laws that make sense. Because there is not always a connection between the evidence and the policy that's being made. And we can't assume that policymakers know the evidence. We have to do the translational work for them. And so with all of that up in the air, I mean, what does the future of public health look like? I mean, it sounds like we might be facing a very different future of public health in just one week from now. Well, the court won't decide these cases for a while, so it won't be just a week, although the election could change many things. And I think that will uh, tell us a lot about what's possible, at least in the immediate future. I mean, the trouble about the midterm election is that it's really a short-term reflection of what's possible, not a long-term reflection of what's possible. So even if, let's say, there is a sweep of the Congress that is a Republican sweep, that isn't the end of the road. It's just the short-term change. That pendulum swings back and forth all the time. And it will make it, I think, so that people in public health become more focused on how they can change law and policy at the state and local level. But at the end of the day, diseases don't respect territorial lines. And we have to think as a nation, and internationally even, when it comes to considering what public health threats are and how they should be addressed. And so turning ourselves to you know, internal state borders and localities, I think is really just a short-term solution. I think more broadly, we need to return to thinking about what the evidence is for trying to institute laws that reflect policies that are sensible in the public health space. Sounds like a federalized public health system, one that affects the entire country, not just state level. I, it's always been a bee in my bonnet that CDC has no real authority. CDC has a lot of expertise, CDC has money, but CDC doesn't really have concrete direct authority, and I think that's a problem for us. And other nations have modeled their CDCs on our CDC, which means other nations with federalist structures are facing the same kinds of problems we are. You make a great point about when you have money and can create institutions like the CDC, other countries, while building up, can follow that, and that has much larger global impacts. That's right, there are ripple effects, there are global ripple effects. And even if other nations have gone in a different direction, it really is remarkable the number that have built on our CDC's model. So I think we really need to be thinking about whether the CDC is acting independently or unduly influenced by politics, how much power CDC has, whether it's a reasonable amount of power, how that power can be exercised, how much money CDC has, can CDC actually work with states? What kind of data are states collecting? Are they collecting it reliably? So being mindful of the time, we just have one more question for you so you can get on and do your busy, busy day. At PHP, we try and do this thing where we ask for a short sentence. We try and say a lot by saying a little, something memorable, but easy to comprehend. So Professor Huberfeld, what would be your short sentence? Don't wait until you can do great things to do good things. Use the knowledge you have to do the good that you want to see in the world. 
Uh, we're just going to have the two of you introduce yourselves, if you could, one at a time. So my name is Christina Dantum. I am a graduate student at IU Fairbanks School of Public Health uh, with a focus in global maternal child health. Hi, I'm Maria Minocha. I am a user experience designer at Microsoft um, and I am a volunteer on the Grassroots Maternal and Child Health Initiative. First, I'm curious how you got involved with each other in the research here, because that's such a, like we were just talking about with interdisciplinary work that often leads into public health. A graphic designer is not often who we think about jumping into public health research, but it's so valuable. Obviously, you guys had a poster here this weekend that looks great, so you. you did your job well. <laughs> Thank you, much appreciated. Tina and I are actually friends from undergrad. Yes, we were roommates. And uh, we, so we, we never collaborated in college at all. We were just roomies and uh, making banana bread on the weekends together. <laughs> then we went on to our respective careers, Rhea becoming a UX designer at Microsoft and I going on to graduate school in public health. And we realized that all of our work is impactful only if it connects to people and engages people. I thought Rhea would be a wonderful addition because she has such a keen eye for understanding messaging and, and how to connect with people. We knew that she would take very good care with the work that we were doing and would represent us well. So we were so happy to, to reconnect and also to bring her on professionally. Amazing. So Connor and I had the pleasure of getting to see y'all's poster presentation and a bit of the product that y'all developed. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit about what you did and what your research was about? We are part of the IU Grassroots Maternal Child Health Initiative, specifically a subset called Mothers on the Rise. Uh, so we created a 75-page manual of health promotional roadmaps to assist women leaving prison with their um, engagement with the healthcare system to empower them to na navigate the healthcare system once they've transitioned back into their home communities. We created a product that was very visually appealing and engaging and accessible to them. And we specifically went into the prison on a weekly basis. We conducted focus groups. We got reiterative feedback from the women themselves. So their perspective and their voice was very integral in constructing our product, something that would really engage with this population and make sure that they are empowered to, to live healthier, happier lives. Um, as a designer on the project, I was brought in to craft the visual identity of the roadmaps, make sure that they were readable, understandable, accessible. And as we collaborated on the identity, we kept the values of the project in mind, which was we wanted to empower the woman, encourage them to advocate for themselves in a healthcare setting. So if you saw the poster, looked at the manual a little bit, you may have noticed like all of these different, this cast of characters. And we were very intentional in how we designed them. Uh, we wanted them to have a variety of skin tones, hairstyles, doing different activities, different stages of pregnancy, because it was important for us that the women felt represented. And then kind of through that, different other graphic design principles like layout, typography, things like that, we created something that was cohesive, but every page could stand on its own. Bethany and I work very much in the sphere of public health communication, and we know how hard it is sometimes to make such intense research translate to the audience that wasn't involved in it, but can really benefit from learning in it. It's so cool to hear how you guys applied the research almost while doing the research like really worked with these communities to develop your messaging. We did, that was very important to us. We were really focused on stakeholder engagement and community-based participation. We wanted to make sure that the women were a part of every single step because if this is for them, their voice needs to be represented in creating it. 
Yeah, and I've been seeing a bit of that in different sessions. Like we were in a session earlier that was talking about participatory design, and that's kind of a philosophy that I've seen in the UX field as well. And, and I've realized there's actually quite a few shared values. We don't want to say, we're coming into this, we're telling you what to do because we're the experts. We're saying, okay, I have this knowledge and skills, how do I meet people where they are? And how do I apply my skills to make sure that their voice is heard, that I'm changing systems to create better outcomes for them? So, this is a product that y'all are piloting in one prison right now, I believe. Yes, yes, we are. So every single manual that we've created will be distributed to every woman as she exits the Indiana Women's Prison. And we are currently in discussions with different prisons across the country. So the women that we worked with specifically were pregnant or they were recently postpartum women. And so we have worked with this community specifically and we hope to ultimately distribute it to other prisons and increase access to care overall. I mean, it's so cool to see you guys doing so much impactful work as students. I mean, you're here at APHA presenting this as, I, do you have your MPH yet or are you working towards I am graduating it? in the spring with my MPH and then hopefully headed to medical school after. So then what does this partnership look like in the future? Because you're coming from Microsoft and Graphic Design, Rhea, and you're getting your MPH soon to graduate. Are there plans to further this Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, first of all, she's never getting rid of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, some of the other things we're interested in are kind of expansion, so figuring out who our partners are in different states. And that, so that reminds me, we initially wanted to target women who were previously incarcerated, who were transitioning into their home communities. That is a very specific population that we're working with, with very specific needs. But as we've received feedback from other people, people have come up to us and said, this is a manual that can help all women. Yeah, I mean, I found myself, even though I made the manual, I sometimes look at it and I'm like, okay, this is what I have to do for my appointment. It's helping everybody, including the two of you who made it. Yes, yes, yep. It is nice to have a, as far as health literacy goes, just a one-stop thing that can just give you what you need at the bare minimum at least. Yes. yes. And direct you if you don't normally have those resources because so many people coming out of prisons, of course, don't have the resources. They don't have connections to a doctor already. They yes. have to find these things out. And it's so amazing to hear that this work is being done. Yeah, and that's an um, amazing thing about when you focus on a very specific population you can really advocate for the topics that they care about, which was what came out of the focus groups. The women were really influential in talking about what was important for them to learn and know about, um, and that guided what was included in the manual. It is so amazing to see and hear both of your perceptions of what public health means to you at the core and how well they complement each other. Having the voices heard, having equitable health are both so important to that greater overall care and access to a healthy and happy life. Yeah, and it's so great to hear that the podcast is focusing on this interdisciplinary work because I think the more and more we have these conversations, we realize a lot of these fields have shared values and have so much we can teach each other. And our part was only one small part of this, this whole initiative. We created the roadmaps, but the rest of our team are doing amazing work in faith-based communities and creating programs in, in that area. And we've created a coordinated system of care for mother-baby pairs coming out of the, the Leith Unit Nursery at the Indiana Women's Prison. Um, and so what's really awesome is that the outcomes of that program is that not a single mother and baby pair have been separated and not a single mother or woman has gone back to prison after going through our program. I mean, when you're talking about the impacts of a program, 
like no one going back into the incarceral system, no parents getting separated from their children when they've already been through the incarceral system is amazing statistics to see, to just show that this has such an impact on the people that are going through it. This is something I really love about the Mothers on the Rise program is they don't say, okay, we're just going to tackle one specific problem. They think about the whole journey that a woman goes through as she leaves um, and they target different things and create all of these support systems. That is so wonderful and it's so amazing to hear about this work you guys are going forward and I can't wait to see where it is in five years. How many, I mean, it sounds like it's growing fast and it's hugely successful. I cannot wait to see how it grows. Thank you, thank you so, so much. So we have one more question for you guys. It's something okay. we do here at PHP. We try and ask for a short sentence. It's okay. a short and memorable phrase that kind of encapsulates what we've been talking about or your view on public health or just anything you want to leave our listeners with. We do have a tagline for our organization and it's called hashtag ask the women. I feel that sums it up pretty well. I think it, you know, don't assume you're the smartest person in the room. Everyone has something they can teach you. PHPOD is brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation in health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the health of the population. Join the conversation by following us on your favorite social media. You can also subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup and see our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>